Yep. Happy Friday, everybody. This is Ryan House from the Smart City Podcast. I am your host, of course. Welcome you back to yet another fantastic episode of the progress of the Smart City Project and also celebrating the past three months that we've had over here. We've got, a, we've got another interesting one for you guys today. We're going to be talking about self-development versus self-help. There is a difference to me, by the way. We're also going to tackle an old age topic. Money doesn't buy happiness. I know there's going to be some conflicting views on this, so I'd love to hear from you guys afterwards. But I have a special story about that one. Then I answer a few of the fan emails that I've been getting sent in. And we'll discuss it at the very end. And I hope to have more to address next week. So let's, let's jump right into it. Let's talk about self-development versus self-help. And I think the clear difference here is almost the type of people that it attracts. So when we talk about self-help, to me, when I think, when I think of that word, I think of the Tony Robbins, um, those motivational speeches that you see on YouTube quite a bit. And it's all this feel-good, feel-good rhetoric. It's, it's all, you know, do what makes you happy. Live for yourself. Don't worry about what other people are doing. And so it all sounds like sage advice until you really dive into it and see how people are applying it and how the audience is actually applying it. And it, all it comes down to is just another form of mental stimulation. There's no long-term changes in behavior or any real self-help in a sense. It's it's a temporary solution. It's a, it's a painkiller. A temporary painkiller is what it is. But here's the thing, is when we talk about self-development, there's a clear difference. And I would say that the first step in self-development is lowering of the ego. That's 100% the most important thing that you can do. But that's what the self-help crowd doesn't get, is that you can't just have these videos that tell you how your life's going to be better by only focusing on your best qualities. You have to look at the weaknesses that you have and that you carry and then what you're going to do about it to fix it. So for instance, three years ago, I'd quit drinking and that was a big deal for me, not because I had a problem with it and I, I was an alcoholic or anything. It was more because of the industry, digital marketing. You know, that's that's a big part of the culture is, is those dinners those networking events and it was it, it was tough tougher than you think to, to stop doing that especially when you're you rely on social events basically for the success of your career but what I started to notice was you know I probably after about three months it got really easy and then I just reminded myself of all the benefits that come along with it but you notice that when you do that, you get looked at like a freak in, in social networking events, e- even in family parties, uh, any social gathering of some sort, you get a negative feedback. And they might not say it up front, but you can just see it in, in, in the eyes. Their body language gives them away every single time. So you look at it and you're, you know, you try not to bring it up. You don't go around gloating about it, at least I didn't anyways. But the most common question I got was, 
you know, did you have to go to, to rehab for it? It's like, no, no, just decided it wasn't for me anymore. And then you get this other crowd that will think that they have to apologize to you. Oh, I'm, I, I meant to quit. I, I'm, I've been meaning to quit lately. That's so good. You know, I just, I only have it a few nights a week, so it's not that big of a deal, but I, I want to get to that stage too. You know, and you, you support them like, you're great. You know, but they, they hold this this thing over you, the rest, and I don't know whether it's it's conscious or it's at the subconscious level, but you'll notice that they will start to tailor their their um, their actions to, to seem like, like the halo effect. It's interesting. So you will meet some some bad feedback with it. Other people will think you're a sociopath. None of it's true, of course. It's, it's just that's how uncommon it really is to to take a stance like that. But it's probably one of the best things that you can do for yourself. It's one of the best things that clears your mind. It's one of the healthiest habits that you can ever adapt. I'm going on three years with not a sip, and the it, it's it's incredible the kind of energy that you wake up with. And so if you do, I, I hey if you can handle that. And that's something that maybe you rely on with work because I'll tell you that there is disadvantages. There are definitely disadvantages of not. By all means, this is not a self-righteous type of topic. I'm more bringing light to the fact that when you do make a a drastic change like that or do something uncommon like quitting drinking, you're going to meet some some feedback and resistance initially. And it's, it's not a direct attack like coming down on you. But you'll notice there's social pressures that that come along with it. You know, it might get the live a little crowd. But you know, that's an that's an interesting that's an interesting idea in itself. Is like you know, what is what is living in their eyes? You know, if it, if it's if it is doing something like drinking, why is that considered living? I, I would say that having abundance of energy, waking up in the morning, having that mental fog lifted being able to think clear being able to tackle your day with your best energy reserves your best when we talk about does money buy happiness it's the age-old debate the funniest thing about this topic is I've had to do it three different times throughout school. Once in high school, where we drew out of a hat and then we had to argue it with somebody, I drew four, and the other person drew against the argument. Later that year, I had to do a, a, a research paper on a topic that you were starting to think more about in your life. I believe it was something like, you know, the the last philosophical conversation you had. So at the time, it was, does money buy happiness? I argued the counterpoint to that. Then when I got to college, went to Arizona State University, I covered the topic again, but this time it was for money buys happiness again. And I went back and forth on this subject. And so I've argued for both sides extensively. And what I've come to the conclusion is, is we do anything we can as humans to protect the responsibility 
of using that tool. We blame the tool and not ourselves and the user behind it. It goes for anything, really. If you think about uh, the age-old debate, do guns don't kill people, people kill people. It goes with, so is social media poisoning our youth's minds? Well, no, it's their low self-esteem and then looking to other people's lives and feeling entitlement to have whatever it is that they're looking at that's making them depressed and feel lower worth. That's what's depressing them. It's not social media. It's been used as a great tool to get great products out there. It's been able to, to change businesses. Same thing with fire. It could be used to cook food or it could be used to burn a house down. It's the utility. And, and we do everything we can to protect, uh, protect terrible choices and, and utilization of it. So this, is, this, this happened probably about 10 years ago. And uh, it was a night class, about three hours long. And we, we had to present a topic um, after you know probably about two weeks of writing a research paper so what many did was they took their paper up with them in front of the whole class and then they read it well I was so frustrated at the time because they were promoting this digital marketing program and I had switched over uh, in, in as as my degree and when I got there there was never any courses about actual digital marketing it was about the technology um, it's just completely, it was a mess. And I was, I was pretty upset and frustrated that I had switched over um, out of the business school for this. I, I was pretty, you know, needless to say, I was frustrated. I wanted to drop out then, but, you know, I had a scholarship, so I had to go through with it. But I decided that day, I, I, was, I was struggling in the, in the library for hours. And, and I put aside time every day to try to make this this paper as perfect as possible. And you know what? The more that I wrote it, the more I realize I have way too much to say about this. This is not going to fit in a in a short five minute public speaking assignment. There's no way. What I did was, I I took that paper, I crumbled it up. I took the chance. I just wanted to get the message across. I wanted people to listen. I didn't want to read off a paper. So when it was my turn. I get up in front of the class and my teacher at the time, she says, where's your paper to turn in? I said, I didn't bring one. I want this one to come from the heart. <laughs> people, people didn't like that. You know, they thought it was arrogant. I can see looking back. Yeah, that, that kind of does sound arrogant a little bit. But the, the, the thing was, I did want it to come from the heart. I really did. And I, I think uh, at the end, actually I did. I got a C. She, she told me it was one of the better speeches that she'd heard. She doesn't normally do that, but she can tell that I put time into it. So that negated the uh, lack of paper handing in. But what I argued at this point was that it was the, the utility and the freedom that it buys. Well, let's say that you're down on your luck or, or actually somebody comes up to you and they're down on their luck. You can help somebody if you have an abundance of money. Let's say it's offering them a job. You can, you can help get them through, through tough situations when you're abundant in money. It's not evil at all. It's the utility of buying useless crap that makes it evil. But it can also buy your freedom and your freedom of time as well. And that is probably at the root cause of most people's unhappiness, that is feeling out of control 
but there's something about the the human condition where we look to be told what to do in a sense it's like we're always looking for some sort of of leader whether people fulfill this need by religious means or they find a cult of personality that they follow there's this inherent ability to always seek some sort of order and when you get involved with the the topic of money it's funny that the first thought that comes to mind is the purchase of goods and not something that can purchase inanimate things like like time for instance or um you know a business that could potentially help people or buying um property in a neighborhood and then fixing up the houses and making the community better why does that go overlooked so much why is the first thing is to assume that people have ill intentions with it probably more revealing about their own mentality but they might use it to cover up for their their lack of drive or accomplishments they might say that as a feel-good thing i think there's a lot of people that fall into that camp and they don't truly believe that saying i think it, it's said as a, as a feel-good thing then there's another camp that really does believe it but doesn't see the benefit of how it's used in, in a in a productive way because maybe they see people that abuse their their wealth and and that's that's a valid point too it, it's rare that you see those behind the scenes people that do use it for good because they're not out there pumping their brakes about it you wouldn't even know that they had a lot of money they're humble about it then there's another camp that doesn't believe it at all they do believe money dies by happiness but you ask them about why is because they'll they'll tell you they want to there's they want to buy everything they want to travel all these self-serving reasons but nobody ever thinks to say well what good has it done and if it wasn't a necessary if it was if it if you did not have to have it in abundance or having it in abundance was it good then why is most of the world that is underfunded for a better lack of terms why are they in squalor and despair all the time why is their country always falling apart why do they have these dictatorships well it's because the population doesn't have access to that kind of money imagine what adding an influx of cash could do for their cities right those are the things that we don't think about or or buying your time back when you have unlocked the chains of time and money together you have what they call real autonomy that i mean that's that's tying your uh, that's severing the tie between trading your time for money it's probably the the biggest thing i would say i would rather make $100,000 of my own money on my own time than $200,000 where I'm rented out for 40 plus hours to somebody else. And I know that's not the situation for everybody. Some people actually they need that kind of structure. And so that's not saying that, you know, I'm I'm above people like that. I I totally get it. You know, and there might be a time where I have to, you know, if if circumstances come up, I might have to actually be a part of that but when we look at the deeper picture we need to understand that we need to take more accountability for our utility of inanimate objects social media is not bad money isn't bad fire isn't bad guns if they were not important people would not be 
using them to protect themselves. Uh, and that goes for the celebrities that are vocally against it. All of their bodyguards have, have guns on them. Why? Why don't, why don't they have an exception with them? Well, because they think they're above it. Their life is more important was their t- what they're telling you. They don't want the possibility of you shooting them, but they want to have that type of protection from it. So really, you gotta, you got to look at what, what's at the core of that agenda. Anyways, love to hear your thoughts about that. Send them in to me, house at bestrevenuewriter.com, or you can go to www.journeytosmartcity.com. Leave me an email under the uh, contact section, and I'll get back to you. We're going to take a quick break. You know, one of the things that I've changed recently is I've been more open to the idea of indie writing, indie books. It might be because I'm now considered an indie author. But I've, I've found actually, because once you get through the classics, then you're, you're left wondering more about specific topics that they cover in those classics that haven't had a an update and then a, a further dissection of whatever the point was so i found this to be true is when we look at traditional published books they're very well edited they're very well organized and structured but i was reading an article that brought up a really good point about the difference between indie and traditional publishing it is that in traditional publishing they're expected to talk about a topic in a very general level at, at the highest level possible and they cover a lot of different topics so let's say for instance it's sales well sales is so nuanced that you could break it out into all these different fragments and then have books about each one of those fragments for instance you could have an entire book about cold emailing you could have an entire book about cold emailing and the headline of it you can have an entire book about and there is of cold calling and, the, and then you can have an entire book about script writing, which there also is. But when you read a sales book, I was wondering why, I, I couldn't quite put my finger on it. Why do I feel so unsatisfied after having read all of these sales books and all these marketing books that were pegged as classics? Well, one is a product of the time. It at the time probably was considered you know, top of the line. But I'm finding that piecing together all these different indie books on the fragments, the, the micro level, right below the macro level, at the very deepest of the micro level, that I'm getting a, a way better feel for uh, the overall picture of the art that I'm studying. So I've come really come around on, on indie publishing, and I used to be, um, you know, I used to look at it like, well, anybody can publish a Kindle book and then, you know, it just goes out the door, it gets approved and they're on their merry way. And then, you know, there's the camp that just create it for money making purposes, which I I think they're doing a good job of sniffing those people out. But for the longest time, I I was always seeking the the traditional publishing and for some reason just had a lot more credibility. And I guess to some degree it still does. You know, you can, you can be assured when you get, when you see a, a traditional publishing book that it's been peer reviewed that the organization that um, is publishing it has looked it over. They made sure that the the information was good enough. 
so I guess there is some sort of comfort with that. But especially lately, I that's all I've been reading is indie books because I've been diving into the nuances of, of certain topics. I, I haven't, I've been left unsatisfied by uh, ge generalization of topics. And one of the biggest uh, areas that has been so interesting to me is there, there's this, um, I, I mentioned it last time, was the rogue hypnotist. So he is um, a hypnotist that grew up in London and he was very successful for you know 10 to 15 years. He, he talks about having a 99% success rate and uh, you know, normally it sounds like BS until you actually read the content of the material. And there, so there's there's some typos. There's a little bit of tangents that he goes off of, like just very coloring outside the lines, pretty much. So if you're one of those people that would say the whole me the rest of the message negates itself because of that, then you probably would be annoyed by it. But I can look past that because I, I see that you know he he actually has written about 16 of these books now. And all of them have a, a special topic and, and theme. And he covers some very interesting topics. And if you look in, I, so I fact-checked some of the things that he was saying. And um, I, I think I maybe found one counterpoint out of the out of the four books that were in this particular series that he wrote that were factually wrong. But he has this book uh, that I just read. It's The Alchemical Persuasion. And so it has this uh, actually pretty eye-catching cover you know it's not bad but th this book essentially talks about the the psychology behind um, persuasion and how people get hypnotized um, neuro-linguistic programming neuroscience goes throughout history and looks at um, philosophy and he'll go as far back as you know where did advertising start how did how did advertising come about what was the evolution of it and he'll talk about the timeline and so these are all verifiable things so I never, I haven't seen to this point, and I've read a lot of books on psychology and NLP, is going this deep into the trenches on, on this topic and, and really diving in and, and speaking outside of generalities and showing how it's applied, showing where it's been successful in the past, the, the science behind it. It's very interesting stuff. I, I, I really, like I said, come around on indie publishing. I would highly recommend looking into indie topics there's some good books that are out right now and you got to keep in mind too people are starting to make ebooks kind of like the the music industry was when napster came along you see more artists are going independent and have been shying away from the traditional publishing model because they see that there's a path there's a way to keep ownership over their art and i think that applies here too is that we see the artists the ones that really take passion and pride in their work are channeling it in, into um, their indie works. And so if you're one of those people that are against it and, and don't really um, see the credibility in it, I would challenge you on that opinion. I think that if you really dug into it and found a topic that you're interested in exploring, I am now finding that some of the, the best books that, I, that I've read on certain topics, nobody would even have heard about. It's not gonna be your, your rich dad, poor dad, or you know, the the four hour work week, those types of books. It's going to be ones like this, The Rogue Hypnotist, which you, you may or may not have heard of. I would probably venture to guess you haven't. There's another one though. So this one's interesting. It's about, a, it's a book that says, uh, humans are not from earth. And so this person 
this author got three stars on Amazon. There's a lot of people that are pissed off. I looked and saw why people are giving it the three stars because I thought the topic itself and the uh, description was compelling enough. But of course, I'm gonna look at the reviews and see if this is just smoke and mirrors. But as I dug into it, I realized it was just offending people. They didn't like the message of it. It wasn't the way that it, um, the content was written. It wasn't um, factually proving any of the heavily referenced science pieces that were in this. But essentially, this art author is arguing that humans are not from this planet because we're the only species that we have a hard time fitting into this planet like other animals have adopted. So, so one of the things is the sun, for instance, arguing that um, you know Neanderthals they had high brow ridges that protected them from the sun, or how um, animals will have a film over their eye to protect them from the sun. But if we looked at it, you know, it, it's it's painful. We get blinded. We don't have a protective layer uh, of film over there. They also which I thought was a good best point of, in the entire book was um, about our diet, how we can't agree on foods that we, we that you know like every every animal knows exactly what they need to eat and they stick to that. They know what they don't need to eat and so they avoid it. But we're the one of the only species that can can pick and choose what we call a diet. And then so there, you know, there's a camp that says eating meat is bad. It's hard on your, your body to digest. We don't have the, um, the elongated intestines like animals do to, to be able to digest it. And, and then there's the, the argument of dairy, you know, that making us sick. Some people have adapted to it. And so the, uh, they, they think that the, our, our, um, this book also says our sleep cycle is altered differently from for most animals in the sense that um, everybody has a different time zone that works better for them. Some people have, have sleep cycles that are best suited for going to bed at two o'clock in the morning and waking up at nine, for instance, or some people are built for um, five hours of sleep as opposed to some people that need 10. I thought that was interesting as well, that you know a horse only sleeps about two hours and that's all they need. And then there's some animals that will sleep 18 hours. I think it was like the the otter, I, I believe it was, that's, that sleeps about that long. But how interesting is, is that as a theory to think about with all the space exploration that's going on and all these rovers, um, you know, this <laughs> Elon on to something that we may have been from Mars? I don't know. It's a, it's a tough topic because it, it would imply that we're, we're basically alien to this planet. But the other thing you got to think about is I was watching this documentary called The Code. And it's so it's about the Fibonacci I think, sequence, the golden ratio, that number, how everything seems to align perfectly to this this ratio. It's the 3.14. And what what this this documentary, it's on Netflix now, I believe. I, th I found I rarely watch documentaries, but this one caught my attention because it was it was so educational in a sense that they um, they found that they did this experiment where they had a big ball or like a big jar of jelly beans, and they went around and had 160 people take a guess at how many are in it, 
How many jelly beans are in this big jar? And then so you got a wide range of answers. You got people that were saying like 80,000. You had somebody that says like 300. The real number was about 4,350, I think it was. And when they totaled up all of the predictions and then divided it to find the average, it was only five off, five jelly beans off. It, it, it's, it's absolutely fascinating how that worked out. And then there was um, lemmings, the, the animal. I found this one to just be that, uh, it, it really, it really um, just got me thinking. I couldn't stop getting the wheels spinning about it. But lemmings, the, the, um, the animal, they produce faster than almost any mammal on this planet. And what happens is when they do, mate they have this weird cycle where you think it's could be a straight line there'd be this overpopulation but it tends to regulate itself they have this what what um the host of the show called the um organized chaos factor so they'll produce they'll they're um they'll i think it's two at a time two lemmings at a time after they mate when they grow up it's almost like i, I don't know i think it was um about three months or so that they were able to reproduce again. And so they will go through these cycles where it's explosive growth. And then you would think that it would just sort of level off. It doesn't, it drastically dips into the point where they're almost extinct. So if you can imagine this, it's like a peak and valley, right? Just up, down, up, down, up, down. That's what it would look like. It would look like you're drawing mountains if you were to plot it on a graph. How fascinating is that? Is that when there's an overabundance, when there's overproduction that it regulates itself in, in in their own little ecosystem that lemmings have and it goes to the point where it's complete and utter despair does that sound um does that sound familiar at all that's just like the stock market almost identical when there's an overabundance you can expect that crash it's like it's almost just common fact now that we know that what goes up must come down and that's how they are. And they'll get to the point where they're almost almost completely extinct. And then they have this another explosion. And it happens naturally. It makes you really think about the numbers that we operate under in this universe. How their point in the code was that it's all mathematics. Mathematics is at the center of everything. And it's hard to disagree with that at all. I found that organized chaos principle it's almost reflective of when things are too good there's bound to be a debilitating crash because if everything was too good all the time it's like the universe's way of self-regulating isn't that insane it makes you really think about what else we really don't know but if you are going to look at any sort of of indie book lately i would highly recommend that rogue hypnotist series and it, you're going to be thrown off because i think some of the reviews are pretty critical that's another reason why i stopped putting as much stock into amazon reviews as well but i would say the rogue hypnotist um, series is is excellent um, humans are not from earth whether you agree with it or not it's an it's an interesting read even if you're being objective about it, it gets you thinking a lot of it is um the, the author is a, uh, uh, has a PhD and has done some some extensive work in in the field of science so I uh, I, I know that there's actually credibility behind it it's just the topic is sketching people out a little bit 
And uh, then there's also um, um, the ellipsis manual that is a supposedly a lot of people were saying that it should be banned because it's that powerful. It's about reading body language and it's using CIA and FBI tactics. The ellipsis manual. By the way, I don't have any um, affiliate connections to any of these. These are just strictly um, recommended reading that is outside of what you find in traditional publishing. It might change your mind on where you stand against uh, indie ebooks and maybe be more open-minded to give them a chance. I started getting back into fiction again with The Tombstone by Stephen Metz. It's, um, uh, it's a book about cowboys and it's, it's entertaining. I'm really coming around on this indie ebook industry and maybe now I'm a little bit more biased because I myself am an indie author. But I think it, it, it's, we're going to start to see a shift over the next couple years too where it's going the, the low quality content is going to start to be filtered out and we're going to see um, the ebook industry become more like the music industry. That's my big hairy prediction of the day. Anyways, would love to hear your thoughts. Send me an email, house at bestrevenuewriter.com or go to the website www.journeytosmartcity.com. Fill out the contact us form. And let me know your thoughts. Would love to hear from you.